Hey everybody, welcome back to the podcast. So, um, today I don't have a very good topic, I'm sorry. I mean, it is a good topic, but it's not a good topic, so it's kind of a sad topic. We're going to talk about humane euthanasia. I know I talked about this at a big tech meeting, like I think it was last year or the year before, um, but we've had so many new people since then, I feel like this is a good topic to still talk about now. So people know like what happens during the euthanasia process because most technicians are not in the room with me when this happens. And so same with receptionists, people call you as a receptionist, but you're not in the room with me. So you don't actually know what happens unless you've seen it or wanted to be there for it, which is again, just kind of an awkward thing, right? So Really, I want this to be that you understand like what is happening in there, what the process is, and just what your um, what your role in it is as well. So let's talk about first um, about what human euthanasia means. So euthanasia, it's a weird word, right? Like, can you think of any words that are very similar to that? I, I can't think of anything that's really similar, but it actually comes from uh, Greek terms. So you, E-U, actually means good. And then thanatos means death. So a good death. That's what humane euthanasia is. We want this to be a good, peaceful death for that pet. When we talk about like more scientific terms of it, like an actual scientific definition, it's a way to describe ending the life of an individual animal in a way that minimizes or eliminates pain and distress. So when people sometimes think about humane euthanasia, um, especially when you're thinking about it in religious senses and things, it could be a really hard thing to like come to terms with as to providing death for a living creature, right? Like, can you imagine being the owner or the pet parent and calling into a clinic asking if you can euthanize your pet. Like that has to be the hardest words to come out of your mouth when they call to ask you how to do that. And as like a receptionist, you know, you're the first line of people that they're going to talk to. And just being compassionate about it is kind of the best thing that you can do. Answering their questions the best that you can, asking the technicians or the doctors if they have more extensive questions. But, you know, a lot of it's going to be like, I think the probably the most common question is, how does this work? What is the process? And really the process that most receptionists are going to know without being in that room is that they schedule it or they come in on emergency and then they are put into a room, their pet is taken in the back and put an IV catheter in and then somebody does paperwork and then the doctor comes in. But that's not actually the euthanasia process, right? Like that's the steps to get to the actual humane euthanasia, which is correct, but um, there's other steps that happen after that process. Like what happens when the doctor's in there? What happens when the technician's in there? As the technician, do you know what the receptionists are saying? You know, do you know what they talk about when they talk about these things with the pet owner? Did you already talk about those things that they've talked about when you go back in the room? So I, like I said, I do think it's important to kind of like know what everybody's roles and, and jobs are. So typically as the receptionist, you know, you're going and talking to that client first, like you're the first person that they have to spill their heart out to, right? That is very emotional for you guys and for them, especially if it's like a pet that you've known for a long time, somebody that's come to the clinic for a long time, you've known them as a puppy, 
you know, or you've known this family for a long time, it can be very hard to deal with and to have to talk to them with it, about that. And sometimes it's even harder when you're doing it out in the lobby with lots of other people as well. So sometimes even just stepping into a room, if there's other people, if there's other receptionists, if you can just step into the room with the the pet parents, I think that can be a really helpful thing. If we already know that they're going to go into one of the humane euthanasia rooms, then just bringing them in there, talking to them about it in there, you know, getting their information in there, I think is really helpful because then they don't have to be crying in the lobby in front of everybody else. Like it's a really uncomfortable feeling for them. So you'll know, put them in room, or if you have to, you're the only receptionist there, you know, unfortunately, then you kind of have to um, do it out in the lobby. But just being as compassionate as possible, asking for their information, and then hopefully getting just like a very brief description as to why they're there for humane euthanasia. We have to remember that there are certain pets that we cannot humanely euthanize. So if there are pets that were that bit somebody in the past 10 days, then we are not technically allowed to euthanize them unless they have two proofs of rabies. So they have to have a current proof of rabies. So one that's a current now, and they have to have one proof of rabies from before. So if they don't have those, then it might be that um, we can't euthanize them and they have to have that paperwork. So I think that's the worst thing is when they come in and they get all ready for humane euthanasia and then we find out that it's because they bit somebody and then they don't have the paperwork with them. So if that's what they're coming in for, it's good to just ask very briefly, you know, you know, I'm very sorry to hear that unfortunately you have to euthanize Fluffy, but can you tell me like what's going on? You know, they might have to tell that story over and over again, but at least if you have some idea, then you'll kind of know whether they need to bring certain proofs, proof of documentation and stuff. You know, so usually then you get into a maroon and then they go and talk to, or the technician comes in to talk to them next. Usually they're going over a brief history as well, maybe a little bit more extensive, like what have you done to like help with the situation? Did you do training? Or if they're there for renal failure, you know, to meaning kidney failure, um, you know, just getting a brief history as like, how long has the kidney failure been going on? Have they been declining really badly recently? You know, things like that. Just asking them a little bit more information so that by the time it comes back to me that I kind of know whether this is a good situation to euthanize this pet. Like, is this going to be something that the pet is not going to recover from and is not going to get better and this is not humane for them to be to continue living? Or is this something that we could potentially find some alternative for? You know, I've definitely had a pet who came in for humane euthanasia and it went through the receptionist who just said it was there for humane euthanasia. It went through the technician who was just there who said it was there for humane euthanasia. I said, well, why are we euthanizing this you know, eight-year-old Lhasa Apso? And when I they didn't know. And so when I walked into the room and talked to them about it, it all came down to that they just didn't have the finances to um, hospitalize the pet. And then when I talked to them more about their situation, and I said, well, would you be willing to try just doing medication? Because I think that that's all your dog needs. Like, would you try that? And they said, yes. And you know, that's what we want. We don't want to have to euthanize pets if we don't have to. So just getting more information so we kind of know what we're walking into because maybe we can save that pet's life instead of euthanizing them.
And then the next thing that the technician is usually going over is going to be um, the cremation options or, or the aftercare options. So depending on what state you're listening to this in, there is there are different laws put into effect just like how a pet can be buried. Most states say that you can't bury it on on public property, but there are some states that just say like literally you can do it anywhere as long as it's sanitary. So you could go to a park if you wanted to, really. But um, most states have like very specific rules. And so they can go to the website for that state to, to Google it and discuss like what their that state's rules are. Technically for Washington, I believe it's three to six feet deep from the top of the pet. And it can't be near, I think it's a hundred feet of a water source, if I remember correctly. So like I said, everywhere has like, there are different rules and laws that have to be abided by. But having them have a home burial is still definitely an option. So they can do home burials. There is, you know, talking to them about other types of burials. There are pet cemeteries around. So you can have your pet buried at a cemetery. There's even some human cemeteries that will have like a special area that's specifically for pets. Um, one question that I have had asked before is like, if you bury your pet in a pet cemetery, can you be buried with them? The answer to that is no, you cannot be buried in a pet cemetery, but your pet can be buried in a human cemetery. Like you can buy a plot next to yours and then have your pet buried with you or buried next to you. Um, some people will choose to bury the ashes of their pet with them in a casket. Perfectly fine. They're usually okay with that. It's just that a person cannot be buried in a pet cemetery. And then talking to them about like group cremation versus private cremation. You know, there's lots of different other types out there, just depends on which companies that you use and what their their wording is for each. But group cremation is generally that a group of animals, so not just that individual animal, but a group of animals are cremated together and typically they'll spread their ashes on their property. Um, I know that there's a property that has an apple orchard. There's another one that has um, like a hill that they have, like a, like a small mountain-y type area that they'll spread their ashes. There's another one that has a lake that they'll spread their ashes on. So it just kind of depends on that company and what they do with their ashes. But usually all the animals are cremated together and then their ashes spread out, not given back to the owner. And then private cremation, meaning that they're going to be just that pet that's cremated and then their ashes given back to the owner. There are some crematoriums that will allow the owners to be there when their pet is cremated. To like, Some people are like, well, how do I know that it's my pet? that I'm getting back and like I said, some places will. Sometimes they have to call in advance to ask for a very specific time for it to be done or they have to or just pay like an extra fee for it to make sure like for them to be there. Um, and some places, there was a place in California that we worked with that they were like, just anytime, if you want to bring your pet in, bring your pet in. And as long as they've brought the pet in, then they'll do it anytime for them. So again, it just depends on that cremation company, but they can always call the cremation company and ask what they want to do for them. There are even some people who will bring their body home and then will take it to 
the cremation company the next day for like one that they prefer to use rather than one that we use because maybe they allow them to do that. So that's an option as well. So a technician goes in there, you know, they're going over these things and then usually bringing the pet back to be able to put in an IV catheter. And that's, I think, always a little bit of a hard thing. So for us, you know, it is calmer for us. We are more likely to get in the catheter on the first poke if we don't have somebody watching us, like a client watching us. But also remember, this is the last moments with this pet and we are taking them away from them. And so I do understand when people ask if we can do it in the rooms or if they ask if they can be with them because, you know, like I said, that's that's hard for them. That's you're taking away their their precious moments that they have left with this pet. So, you know, if the if you aren't comfortable with doing the IV catheter in front of them, you tell them, you know, I just worry that we're gonna be a little bit nervous if we're doing it in front of you, and I don't wanna put them through more stress than they need to. So if it's okay, you know, so that we make sure we don't poke them, hopefully more than one time, I prefer to do it in the back so that we have all of our supplies there and we're not so nervous about it. And people will say, you know, that they understand a lot of the times and be okay with it. If they're not okay with that and they don't want their pet to leave, then maybe go ask somebody else, go ask another team member if they will do that in the room for them. So that that way they can remain with their pet. If they do okay it for you to bring them back, you know, the technician usually brings the pet back, puts in the IV catheter, hopefully one poke, but you know, Hopefully we get that catheter in. One of the another hard part about these humane euthanasias is a lot of times they are already really sick and so their veins are not very good and it can be difficult to get an IV catheter into some of these. We don't want to poke them over and over and over again and cause more harm because again we want this to be a good death, a peaceful death. We don't want to put them through torture of like poking them a hundred times. So if we just cannot get a catheter, especially in some of those dogs that have like a lot of fluid buildup in their legs, those are almost impossible to do. So if we get to that point, then it's usually talking to the owner about maybe giving them sedation and then letting them fall asleep in their arms and then we take them afterwards or giving them sedation and then coming in and putting the last injection into the kidneys or into the abdomen. It'll be slower, but at least it's something and they can be with their pet. You know, So there's lots of different options of things that we can do to hopefully still let them be there with them. Exotics are a little bit hard because some exotics we have to, we'll put them into um, one of those tanks so we can put them under anesthesia with just gas and then do our euthanasia that way. But again, if somebody really wants to be with them, like we still have the option of like, we could give them sedation. The nice thing about um, our exotics is really like, if we don't give them the right drug, it's not going to hurt them because we're already going to euthanize them, you know? It's like, we can give them something and some sort of sedation, let them fall asleep with the owner, and then maybe bring them back after that. Or we can potentially give them another injection into the abdomen or the coelom, which is for reptiles and birds, they don't have an abdomen and a thorax or an abdomen and chest. They have just one big cavity that's called the coelom. So we can potentially do that. And then again, let them fall asleep with them. 
Reptiles are a little hard because a lot of times like snakes and um, aquatic things, they don't take a breath very often. So they can be hard to put under anesthesia. Their heart does not beat very fast. It beats very slow. And so it can be a really long time before they actually um, are euthanized. Like turtles and tortoises, they can be really difficult to get an injection into. And you don't know if they are alive or not sometimes because you can't always hear their heartbeat very well. So some of those I do require that they stay overnight and be picked up in the morning. And then typically we'll draw like a circle around them and on a piece of paper in a cage and then just see if they move from that spot. And if they don't, then likely going to be gone at that point. You can use a Doppler to try to hear their heartbeat as well. But sometimes, again, it can be really hard, especially when they're really sickly. But again, another option. Before we do bring them back into the room, though, I do recommend just making sure that the IV catheter is not blown. You know, flushing it again to make sure everything goes well, because that's the hardest thing to talk to the owner about. The IV catheter isn't working. I'm fumbling with it during trying to do this humane euthanasia, and we can't get it to work. So please do make sure to check that beforehand so that we don't have to bring them back in again in the back and we're not fumbling and you know it it just doesn't look good when we do that. Now by this point, you know, the receptionist talked to them, the technician has talked, we've got an IV catheter into them, we've brought them back into the room and told them about the buzzer, you know, can spend as much time as they want with them and then let us know when they're ready. Usually the technician will then come in the back and draw up medications. Um, every doctor is different as to what they like. I prefer to sedate mine beforehand. So I like to use TTDEX because it has Torb in it, which is some sort of sedative and pain medication. And it has Dextomator in it, which is a, a sedation. So I want them to know that they do not feel any pain and that they are asleep and do not know what's happening. So that's what I prefer to do. Some people use propofol and some people don't use anything at all for as a pre-medication for it. I always talk to the owners about what I'm going to do. Again, this can vary from doctor to doctor, but I'm going to tell them that you know I'm going to do three injections. The first one is going to be just a flush. So it's just making sure that the catheter is working. The second one is that I'm going to put them under sedation. I'm going to give them this injection that has a really good pain medication and a sedation in it so that they do not know what's happening and they do not feel any pain because that is a good death to me. You know, I want them to know that this is going to be okay for them. And then the third injection is going to be the last one. You know, this is I usually don't tell people exactly what it's going to do, but just so that you know what it's going to do, it is going to stop their heart. It slows their breathing, it slows their heart rate, and eventually stops it. Most of the time, this lasts less than a minute. And one of the things I tell people in the rooms, but also I think is really important for the technicians who are taking that pet out of the rooms afterwards, is the things that they should see or expect to see after the euthanasia solution has been delivered. So one thing is that their eyes are going to stay open. A lot of people think that their eyes close when they actually are euthanized when they die, but that doesn't actually happen. Even in people, uh, my ex-girlfriend was a, um, she did like embalming and stuff and worked at the crematorium and all these things. This was after we dated. But anyways, she did all these things. And one of the things that she had mentioned is that 
they put this weird little circle with spikes on their people's eyeballs to keep the lids of their eyes closed because they don't naturally close. Your muscles naturally keep them open. So their eyes usually stay open. I will usually tell people that, you know, there's they're likely to see like a breath afterwards or a twitch afterwards. And that is one thing that I think is really important for technicians to know because sometimes they'll buzz afterwards because somebody may not have told them that that might happen. And they think that their pet is still alive. But, you know, if their eyes are open, they've taken a breath, it looks like they're alive at that point, right? That's usually not the case. Usually it's just that their nerves are firing, even though that their heart is not working at that point. And they'll take those agonal breaths, those really dramatic breaths, as if they're trying to gasp for air. But that's not really what's happening. Again, it's just the body. So, you know, when they buzz and say that they're still alive, a lot of times that they are not. Still bringing in a stethoscope, still checking to make sure, and they're just reassuring them, you know, that this is sometimes part of normal part of the process. Or they'll see a leg twitch and think that they're about ready to get up. Again, like even when you're taking the pet back and you see them take a breath or twitch their legs, still check afterwards to make sure that you don't hear a heartbeat, but most likely it's just going to be those nerves that are firing. And then I usually tell people, you know, they can spend as much time as they want to afterwards. I just want to make sure that the pet has gone and then they can spend all the time they want and buzz when they're ready. You know, after that, um, a lot of times I ideally I would like to have them go out through a separate entrance, not through the lobby, if at all possible. But I know that's not always possible. Um but I think that people are a lot more comfortable when they're not like walking through a large lobby full of people and are crying. They just prefer that. You know, they they don't really want to do that if they don't have to. So just letting them do those kind of things. So that's kind of like what the humane euthanasia process is. So now I just want to talk about some other things that are around humane euthanasia things. So one of the things that people will ask is, or they'll say to me is, well, I know you can't tell me um, if it's okay to put my pet to sleep. I know it's illegal, but what would you do if you're in my situation? And that's um, a really interesting misnomer. So that's not a legal problem. We don't have a legality issue with saying whether it's okay to put a pet to sleep or not. You know, it is my job and part of my oath to tell a person what is going to make their pet the most comfortable. And if whatever we did was going to make that pet worse, then it's not worth doing that, right? If I tell somebody that if I, you know, our options are we can go to surgery for something that there is likely going to be cancerous, then it is okay for me to tell them that their pet should, they should also consider humane euthanasia for their pet. Like that is, those are okay conversations to have. Um, they, we want them to have their best life. And if they can't live their best life with the medical therapy or surgical therapy that we can give them, then, then that is not a life worth living for me. You know, I want them to be a dog and enjoy their lives. And if they can't do the things that they love, then, then that's just not a good quality of life. So it's okay to talk about those things. Um, another thing that's a kind of a hard topic is like w how to deal with your own emotions for this. You know, this is something I do constantly. Like I have done this for, I don't even know how many years now, like 
30 some odd years at this point, and I've seen tons and tons of death every single day. And you get to a point sometimes like where you feel like you're just hardened about it, or you feel like, well, it's not a big deal if I do 12 euthanasias in a day, but that is a big deal. And it's okay to feel those feelings. And it's okay to like not go into certain euthanasias. You know, if you have um, a situation where it's a type of breed of dog that you just lost and that's the breed of dog that needs to be euthanized, that's not the right time for you to go in there. You don't want to break down while they're breaking down. You know, if you uh, had a really bad day that day or your grandpa just died or something and you just can't handle that humane euthanasia that day, it is okay to let your other technicians or other receptionists know that this is just not something that you can handle right now. And remember that they're going to have those days too. They're going to have a day that they just can't handle those things either. And so it should be okay for us to to pass those things off if we need to do that. Especially when we do so many of them. Sometimes I feel like you know, the triage technician ends up doing a lot of them because that's who av who's available to like do all the paperwork and whatnot. But that shouldn't be just the only person doing it. And you should step in and help to make sure that they're not the only person doing that. That is how burnout happens. And we don't want that to happen. We don't want people to burn out all the time because they're just constantly euthanizing animals and not saving any animals. And during Things like holidays, that will become very apparent. You know, there's a lot of euthanasias that happen around holidays. And again, we, like, we want to feel like we're saving animals, not just euthanizing everybody. But remember that euthanizing isn't a bad thing. It's a good death. Like That's what we want to make it. We want to make this something that is peaceful for them and peaceful for us. If that means we give them extra treats, we give them chicken, we give them chocolate, you know, then do so. If that means you give them an extra squeeze before you give them back to the owner, you know, whatever it is that's going to help you to um, be okay with knowing that this is going to help the animal and not something that's really hurting the animal, you know. Another hard thing is talking about financial euthanasias. You know, we'd give them lots of resources for things and sometimes they just can't do it. Blocked cats is a really good one. A lot of people have to euthanize their blocked cat because they've already hospitalized them two or three times and they just cannot afford to do it anymore. Or maybe they haven't done any hospitalization or anything at all and maybe they just realize that this is going to be a long-term problem. Like Even though we unblock those cats, this is a lifelong problem and can very well happen again. And if they're in a situation that they can't prevent that from happening again, like some outdoor cats or some places that have like 12 cats in their house and they just know that, that there's no way that they can do that, then it's not wrong for them to humanely euthanize them because again, like we're going to help that cat no longer be in pain or suffering. So again, just like remembering that there are is a reason for why we have to do it sometimes, even though it might not be a great reason. You know, we always want to give them whatever resources we can, give them other places that might be able to help, you know, the financial resource sheet, giving them options of like taking their pet to the Humane Society, things like that. But in the end, like if 
they can't do that. It is up to the veterinarian's discretion as to whether they will do it or not. But in the end, unfortunately, sometimes that is the better thing for them. Speaking of veterinary discretion, you know, I talked earlier about like the euthanasia for if for if the animal bit somebody else. You know, if there are times when we feel like that pet should not be euthanized, it is up to the doctor's discretion. So a lot of questions will be asked and like, well, the owner says that they want to euthanize and it's only two years old. Um, what do we do? Well, it is up to the veterinarian's discretion. I can say I will not euthanize that pet if it's not something that's not a life-threatening thing. You know, if that dog attacked another dog, well, it's not attacking a human. You can be home it to another home. You can do proper dog training. Like there are lots of things that they can do before we have to get to the point of euthanizing them. So as a doctor, we can say no, that we're not going to euthanize those animals here in the hospital. Make them comfortable. Let them go home and eat lots of whatever foods they want, lots of steaks and bacon and stuff, and then plan for that euthanasia. They can call places that will come to their hosp- sorry, to their house to be able to do the euthanasia for them in a quiet, quiet environment. They can also have you know, an appointment for it. Instead of walking in through the emergency, they can have an appointment set aside for it. So that way, Things are being rushed. Um, they're not waiting for a long period of time because sometimes if the doctor is in some sort of critical emergency or you know this happens a lot at night that the doctor's in surgery or something and then the technician has to go in and do it. So you know, if they can plan for these things and make it on their own time, I think that that's really helpful for them. All right, another question that I've had asked by some of the receptionists has been like, what kind of resources are available out there for people? Like they're grieving and what kind of support do they have? So there are support groups at some of the main hospitals. I think that it's Summit, if I remember correctly, that has a social worker that's there, that's there specifically for like grieving pets. So they can do like support groups. There are pet loss hotlines that people can call. You can just Google it, pet loss hotline. And there are quite a few of them that come up. So people can call and talk to somebody specifically about their grieving pets. There are online resources. There's like forums where people can write letters like in a public forum to their pet, post pictures of them, and just like you know, do kind of like a eulogy almost, like just talking about how much they loved them and how great of a dog or cat or rabbit or bird or whatever they were, how they were the best dog or the best bird or, you know, the best chameleon, whatever it is that they want them, they want them to be remembered by more than just them. There's also lots of Facebook groups that are specifically dedicated to mourning of their pets. And then there's also videos. So Best Friends does a video about it. There's a TEDx talk that talks about this as well, just like the morning of your pets. There's lots of books. So books for kids, books for teenagers, books for adults that talk about like the morning stages and how to mourn for them. Then there's webinars as well. So it's just webinars that people can can watch online about um, grieving their pets. All right, this last part I'm going to talk about is going to be about just 
whether somebody has to be there with their animal or not, and like how we approach that in our mindsets. So not everybody wants to be with their animal when they go over that rainbow bridge, right? There are lots of reasons for that. And I can tell you personally, like for me, I had had um, a cat that I had to put to sleep. And just the last, like the thing that I remember the most is the last moments when that happened. I remembered the look in her eyes. I remembered the way that she had to sit on the table that I wasn't able to hold her. Um, There was just a lot of things that now I would have done differently, even though I had already been in the vet clinic for, you know, the vet clinics for a large number of years, I think like 15 years at that point. um, That was still really hard for me to go through, even though I had helped euthanize tons of animals by that point. But just it being my own animal, you know, I kind of understand sometimes when people don't want to be there. They don't want that as the last thing that they see with their pet. Like they don't want that to be the last memory. People will do that with people, other people as well sometimes. Like they don't want to see that their their grandma or whatever has gotten really old and now they don't want to see like that decrepit nature of them and think of that as their last thoughts of them all the time. So if they choose not to be there with them, the best thing that we can do is for us to be there for them. You know, having somebody hold them, talking to them, petting them, which I know I see a lot of people do, and I think that that's a fantastic thing. Whether it's receptionists or technicians or assistants or whomever, another doctor, just somebody holding them, somebody giving them treats, whatever it is, while we sedate them so that they don't know what's happening after that, right? Because once they're sedated, they don't they don't know. Yes, that they may be a little panicked when they come in the back, but isn't really that the same feeling as when we're bringing them in the back to put in an IV catheter, right? In both of those situations, we've taken them away from their family. And in just one situation, we're putting in a catheter and bringing them back. And in another situation, we're giving them an injection and letting them fall asleep. So I know that some people get really upset sometimes that their owners don't want to be there with them. And I don't think it's that they necessarily don't want to be there for their last moments. I think that sometimes it's just that they can't do that. They just emotionally cannot do that. And that's okay. Like I said, we can do everything we can to make sure that they have a good death, right? We want that to be a good humane euthanasia. All right. Well, that was enough of... um all that sad talk, and I'm very sorry about that. But like I said, I do think this is a really important topic and should be discussed so that people know what happens in the rooms and know what happens um, with each part of everybody's jobs. All right, I've been trying to come up with some fun stories to tell you guys. Uh, one thing is I will show you some cool thing. I guess kind of cool thing is that I've actually been on like multiple other podcasts now for just talking about what I do either as an emergency veterinarian or what I do with education. And I was just recently on the Vet Success podcast, which is funny because I got emails from people who I didn't even know listened to this podcast who emailed me say that they've heard me on the podcast. So I was recently on that one talking about how I like educating and educating how educating our technicians is really important. Um, so yeah, that was kind of cool. But um, I also, my other fun story was 
so I've written papers. I think I've talked about that before. I've written a paper about um, veterinary attire, and I've gotten an award for it. And I've had it published in JAFMA, which is our really cool paper. Uh, so that was been really awesome. Not something I ever thought that I would do, but I did it. But one of the other things that I did is I actually did research and wrote a paper about um, Drosophila, which is a fly. So I did research on Alzheimer's and whether certain a certain drug could help people who have Alzheimer's in the early stages of it. And so I looked at the before they had any symptoms, the early stages and the late stages. Now, that's kind of hard to equate to a fly, right? Because you're like, how do you know that the fly has Alzheimer's disease? Well, they actually genetically modified these flies to make them have Alzheimer's so that they had a very short lifespan. Like you could see that they had a very short lifespan from it. You could see that they were very confused. The goal was that I would test to see like how quickly they could go from the bottom of this unlit little test tube to the top where it was lit. And I would use regular flies and see how long it took them and also how long they lived for. And then I would take these Alzheimer flies, see long, how long it took them to get to the top and also how long they lived for. And you could see these Alzheimer flies would actually like get really confused and did not know to go to the top. So they might move around, but they had no idea to go to the light. It's really crazy. But here's the funny part of this. So the protein that they were testing was something called spermidine. Spermidine. Okay. It was found in sperm for the first time, but it's actually found in lots of other different things. Grapefruit did all these other things, but that's just what they found in the first place. So I had to get up in front of, I think about 500 people and talk about how you should eat spermidine and why that would help make sure you don't get Alzheimer's disease. And I had a lot of interesting questions about why it was called spermidine and where the spermidine came from. And was I actually suggesting what they thought that I was suggesting? <sighs> These are the things you do to get into vet school. I was like, I will do anything to get into vet school. And I asked them for a research project. And this is what they gave me. I did get a very good grade for it. But um, I feel like she could have given me a different topic. But uh, that's that's okay. It was, it was very interesting. So there's my fun tidbit for the day. And don't forget if you have any questions, if you have any topics you want me to do, just let me know. You'll catch me when you're there. Email me, text me, whatever. I'm always happy to do whatever topics you want and answer any questions. All right. Thank you guys. I'll talk to you next week.